What do you do when the pressure of a job begins to reduce your mental health, but you stay in denial that's even happening at all? Well, my next guest, podcast host, author, speaker, and entrepreneur, Chloe Bisson, discovered that she had depression despite there not being any other typical signs that there was an actual problem. So what followed next was a journey into the truth, not only about her mental health and what was needed to help her heal, but also what would help her become more successful than ever before. So if you're someone who struggles with their mental health and wants some insights on how you could turn things around to live the life you truly want to live, then this episode is perfect for you. And welcome, Chloe Bisson. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Paul. How are you? I am very good. Excited that you're here. We're we're show shopping. I'm looking forward to being your swishy set. Uh, (laughs) I'm being grilled by you. But first of all, you're here with me. And uh, because you've got such a big story in regards to you've got from there to here, huge success, massive podcast, amazing guests. But it wasn't always like that, was it? No, definitely not. Would I wish it was? I'm not entirely sure. (laughs) (laughs) What happened? Where did this, where did it all go wrong for you? I mean, it went very dark. And I, you know, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I'm hoping listeners who are tuning into this episode will get an idea of what's possible if there's a certain mindset or tools or strategies, anything that you've used to get yourself from there to here. So what was Mm -hmm. happening for you back then? Yeah. So it's a bit of a difficult one because I can explain it now because I've been through it and I've learned Mm. a lot from it, but I had no idea what was happening to be really honest with you. So tiny bit of context. I was a chartered accountant in the corporate world. I had studied really quickly. I was a chartered accountant by the age of 21 became a director of a finance company by the age of 24. So I had really, I was so addicted to success. It's unreal. Like I was like, and I didn't know that at the time, but I was just push, push, Mm. push. Parents said I need to have a good job. I must be able to achieve this. And, you know, I must get those letters after my name and everything that I thought I needed. And I got to being this director at 24. And I remember getting the business card and being like, mom, dad, it says director, you know, it's probably the only thing my parents or any of my family ever stuck on the fridge. You know, it was like, oh my God, (laughs) Chloe's a director. First one in our family, you know, that kind of vibe. And when I thought it would feel great, it didn't. You know, the first couple of months, the salary was fantastic. Mm. All my friends were just coming back from uni and there's me with, you know, six figure salary. Everyone's like, what? This is incredible. But it just wore off really quick. And then when it wore off, I was just like, what now? Mm. why am I why am I doing this what because I never wanted to be a business owner I want it clear to say that I was like where else can I go I can't go any higher up the ladder and and it just made me sit with myself and actually live the dream that I'd been looking for and I just felt empty and at the same time as that I was so unaware and I just as most people do shake it off oh I'll just get over it stop being so ungrateful be grateful that you're there and all that sort of stuff I was telling myself but what had also been happening on the side of that was I was feeling really sick all the time And 
When mm. I hear about mental illness now, no one really talks about the physical symptoms. I experienced physical, not mental at first. So I was getting queasy all the time. Every Monday, I'd feel really sick waking up. By Friday, I'd feel fine. And it was like this really weird cycle. And I ended up going to the doctors and I genuinely thought, <laughs> Paul, I was like, they'll just give me some stomach tablets and it'll make the nausea go away. Like, honestly, that's what I thought would happen. <laughs> How naive I was. <laughs> so I got into the doctors and I told her what was going on. And this was back when you had a family doctor. And she turned around, she said, Chloe, thank you for sharing. I just want to be honest with you, though. I think your stomach's fine. I actually think you're you're struggling with depression. And I was like, wow. sorry. Okay. And yeah. it was honestly like this. I'm, by the way, was like a super positive person, hostess with the mostess, always there for people, smiling all the time. No mm. one ever saw me like crack. And I was like, I probably got quite abrupt, to be honest with you. I can't really remember it because I just remember seeing, like feeling this like rage of who the hell do you think you are? That's not mm. what I need. Complete reaction. And she probably wasn't that surprised and said to me, look, Chloe, I think you need some time off, which that didn't go down very well either because I was a workaholic and who am I without my job? But she said, I want you to take three days off work because I do believe you're severely clinically depressed. And it was quite a bold statement. Like she was very yeah. quite like, I'm not going to put that on your note yet. I'm going to put down that you're stressed, but I'm just going to let you know that I really think you're going to need some more time. So I'm going to give you two days. So I think this was like the Wednesday. And she said, by the Friday, I'm going to call you before we finish up the week and see how you're doing. But just sit with this. And I left that doctor surgery and I was probably thought I knew best, told everyone like, oh, she's rubbish. Like just wasn't very happy. The, the next phone call came those couple of days later and like the denial had popped. It was like the reality had hit me. I was probably worse than I ever thought I could go. I was crying constantly. I was just so emotional. And I remember her ringing me just saying, how are you feeling? And I just completely crumbled and mm. I was so apologetic. But that was when the darkness really came. I think a lot of people who don't know depression think that that person looks sad and think that that person is knows that they're sad. I had no idea. I could not have been further in denial. Did people around you notice? Were they picking up on anything that you were doing at all? So I'm wondering what it is it with I me mean, besides the nausea? What was it that the doctor, what else were they seeing that said, hey, hang on? This is mm. clinical depression. Yeah. So I think the only person that probably saw it was my mum. And weirdly enough, she'd actually had a day off that day and asked if she could come to my appointment with me. She's like, let me just come with you. I'm, I'll be around. We'll go for lunch afterwards. Mm. She knew. But okay. she obviously, if she'd have said to me, I think you're depressed, Chloe. As a daughter, I would have gone, you're mad. And the reason I think she knew was because she'd had depression in the past. So she'd seen the symptoms. Mm. And I, other than that, most of my friends didn't believe it most a lot of my friends avoided me after that because they were like how do I handle that you know she's gonna be crying all the time and all this sort of stuff and I remember once when I met up with a friend who and bearing in mind all my friends were 24 years old as well right so none of them had really some of them just got back from university just started their careers it was like a different level of emotional intelligence and maturity mm. and I remember meeting up with one of my friends and him saying to me oh I, I thought you'd be crying loads and I was like no I'm 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 depressed but I can still not be crying. I can still feel other things. And mm. what I believe she saw was the denial, was the just keep pushing, just keep pushing, just keep pushing. When she started asking me questions about what else was going on and everything I just cut back to was my career, I believe that was where it unraveled. And to be honest with you, I can't even remember much of it because I was in such a cloud of denial that I can't even, I look back and I can hardly remember most of the conversation. 
So do you think your denial was your way of coping with that? It oh, was yeah. your way of, of, because, I mean, it's not like everyone's gone to the, um, you know, depression 101 class, is it? And this is what symptoms you get, and this is what you should look out for and how to handle it. Um, so denial was your way of coping with it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and then what happened? So that was the start of six months off work because at that point I crumbled to the point where I'd never been anxious. I mm. never even knew I'd felt sad, let alone depression. I was so numb from it. I became paranoid with myself. How could I possibly not have seen that in my own brain? How can I be this qualified and this successful, loose terms, what I thought was success, and be so clueless of all the people I'm managing that trust me and I trusted myself. And there was all this like voices in my head going, you know, nothing about yourself, you know? And it was honestly, it was like a whirlwind down everything I thought I knew about myself. It was like someone pulled the needle and the whole thing unraveled. Mm. And I had to go back from square one. Now she'd put me in touch. I had private health insurance at that point, thank God of my job. And she'd put me in touch with a, a therapist and a psychologist and referred me that way they still had eight weeks waiting list on the private. And I, bearing in mind, I was a high achiever driven. I was like, I'm not waiting eight weeks. Like I need to do something now because even though I was, I was in such darkness and such pain. And luckily my auntie was actually a coach. And I didn't even know that because I just thought, oh, she speaks to people all the time. I didn't know a coach Mm. was. I I just, (laughs) I was no clue. Right. So she ended up coming around and she said, right, I'm going to let's, let's just have a session. And it was my first ever experience of coaching. And she did a little bit of therapy, but mainly coaching like we do, which is, you know, really being curious. And she, I remember she said to me, Chloe, what are your values? Now, such a very simple coaching question. Mm. And I remember saying to her, can I have those? And it was one of those moments where the words came out of my mouth and I was like, what am I even saying? Of course I can have values, but Back then, I was so absorbed in the corporate world of what I thought I should be and who I thought I should achieve and all this sort of stuff that I thought values were what you put on a wall. You know, it, I, <laughs> yeah. I had no idea that yeah. individuals had values. And I look back now, you know, 10 years on and I'm like, God, how how much I was so unaware of who I was. And so the the journey then started of who who is Chloe without the career? Who, who do I actually mm. want to ever be? You know, I don't remember ever saying this is why I want to achieve that. It was like, I just want to achieve that. And I believe it was because of the way I was brought up and always, you know, when I did well, I got results. When I, my parents gave me more attention, it was all that sort of stuff. And so I had to just find myself again. And then as soon as I did that, I remember trying to get back into work. It was a very long journey over those six months. Don't get me wrong. And Mm -hmm. even six months off after being such a career driven person who was doing 80 hour weeks constant, it was like, who am I? What am I doing with my time? But I remember then looking at going back to work and looking at what I would be doing. And I just, it didn't feel the same. There was no interest. It was like, what is the point in that Mm. compared to this? Going back to before, if before the depression kicked in, Mm. imagine that you hadn't had depression. Imagine that you didn't have that nausea and gone to the doctors. What do you think would have happened in your career? If I had never had the depression or the mm. nausea, I probably would have been ca- continued. I probably mm. would have carried on pushing, pushing, pushing. Yeah. Probably would have job jumped a few times, still searching yeah, yeah. for something because I was always searching. Um, yeah, yeah. But before that in my career, 
before I became a director, they told me it would take 10 years. I was like, how can I shortcut it? And I moved across the world. I moved to Luxembourg for six months to prove I could start a new office, build a new team in a country. I don't speak the language, you know, did all that. So I, I do yeah. genuinely believe I would, would have probably just jumped, moved to another country, did the same. You know, I probably mm. would have just been constantly searching for that external fix of yeah, yeah. what's going to give me that that hit of achievement. Yeah, you know, it's, it's very common, isn't it, to find, to have an extrinsic value. And I, I know you were saying about your parents and how you're brought up, but I do think our culture has a huge impact on whether we're intrinsic and, you know, what's important with our values and what matters to us inside, or whether we're quite extrinsic and what, you know, what trophy person can I have on my arm or what, you know, what can I have in my wallet or what, where am I going on holiday? All of those sorts of material uh, trappings. Um so it sounds to me that if you hadn't had that depression then, then do you think you would have lived a happier life? Do you think job hopping and doing all these things, or do you think that was a wake-up call for you to do something Massive wake-up call. Yeah. Massive wake-up call. If I if I think about that, I've never thought about it like that, but if I thought about, if I think about that, I reckon the crash would have been bigger. Yeah, yeah. Because I would have been just, I probably would have been jumping relationships. I probably would have mm. been losing friendships to prove that I could do better. Like, and I know that sounds bad because I don't believe that now, but I think mm. that's what I was looking for. I wanted the next jump. I wanted the next stretch. I was already investing in properties, which I'm grateful I did, but I probably would have messed that up to go even bigger. You know, the, I probably would have taken bigger risks mm. to get the fix. So I, yeah, I, I'm so glad it happened now because of the person I've been able to become. And more importantly, the lessons I've learned now as to why I make decisions. I'm really challenging that, not just going for the short-term fix. Yeah, I wonder, you know, I hear this, these sort of stories quite a lot and I have my own awakening experience where I crashed with anxiety and um, that created that internal drive and what's wrong with me, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. what do I need to do? Because buying something isn't going to fix it. Then we'll try our best at that, you know, it's mm -hmm. we want to feel good. But we have to go in inwards and then we create massive changes. We have that ju big jump in consciousness, you know, mm -hmm. big leap in our development because there's been a crisis of faith, a crisis in, in, in ourselves. And, and that's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like mm -hmm. you had this powerful experience where I talk about it on my other, uh, on my work, where mind, body and spirit almost conspire not really, but it, it always works together to go, right, okay, Chloe's not really listening to us. We gave her the nausea and, <laughs> you know, we're so not very good at listening to our bodies, are we? Um, oh, gosh, yeah. that, that we'll have to do this crash thing. And and then from there, you you transformed your life. So what did help you? What, you know, besides obviously finding out your values and you had a coaching session with your aunt, what has really helped you uh, begin to move to where you are today? Yeah, it was just doing so much of the deep work. I had a couple of coaching sessions with her. Then the therapy came about. Okay. By that point, I think the stuff she was going through, I'd already then had, you know, so I was okay. kind of a bit, it was a bit late, but yeah, yeah. it was really helpful. Um, I genuinely also think rest really helped and just giving myself permission because without going into too much detail, I got signed off very quickly for a long period of time. It mm. wasn't like a week, a week, a week for six months. It was like, by the end, it was like, let's do it a month yeah, at yeah. a time. Okay. So that took the pressure off to just be like, I'm in no rush now. And just sitting with myself and being present with, it doesn't matter where I'm going to be in a month or a year or 10 years. This mm. is who I am today. And there were some days where I remember 
being in bed and just the best bit of success I did was have a shower and get on the couch, put my, put clean PJs on, you know, it was that point. And I, it was the little things that made a difference. I remember one day I needed to go to the, the, the shop in my block of flats for milk. Now, the place I lived had a shop inside. I didn't have to go outside into the street. Like it was in the lobby. I could go down. Right. And I remember being so anxious about that because what if I see someone, what if they wonder where I am? What if they wonder why I'm not sick? Mm. I don't look sick. Cause you know, back then you don't talk about it. You don't say, Oh, she signed off with depression, you know? And I remember getting the milk, running back upstairs as if someone was chasing me, close the door and be like, Oh God, I did it. You know? And I look back and I think, God, like how fragile must I've got to, but I needed to get to that level. And also what made a big difference was, I think when people go through these challenges, a lot of people think they can help because they know best. You need to read this book. You need to do this. You need to listen (laughs) to this podcast. And actually my people might be listening to this who have been told to listen to this because of these people, right? (laughs) So I'm not dissing it, but I remember the first person I was like, oh, thanks. I'm not joking, Paul. I must've got recommended about 20 books. And I remember turning around and saying, if one more person gives me a leaflet, a pamphlet or a book, I'm going to throw it at them. Like I was like, I just, <laughs> it, unless you've lived and breathed it, I don't want to read it. Cause a lot yeah, of people yeah. were re- sending me books that were like science or, you know, the medical stuff. And it wasn't that it was just, I don't want to learn from a doctor. I don't want to hear from another doctor. I want to hear from someone that's been there. And um, a friend of mine gave me a book by a guy called Matt Haig. Oh, and, yeah. Oh. He lives in Brighton where I'm at. Yeah. He's a no Brighton. way. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, he, he changed my life and his book yeah. reasons to stay alive. Someone oh. gave it to me fascinating amazing book right and i remember reading it and this is for me it sounds such a small thing but i think this was the real catalyst of going from understanding and suffering to a switch of maybe i can do this and i remember i was reading this book and there's a bit in it where he talks about how people talk about how they would never talk about physical illness the way they talk about a mental illness you know oh you've got cancer of the lung oh you know mind over matter you'll get through it you know (laughs) and stuff like that and I remember reading this Paul and I giggled out loud and I remember laughing because that's exactly what people are like and I thought oh my god I just laughed and it was the weirdest feeling of like just I felt like someone got me I felt like it made Mm. sense I felt so inspired by his journey and the way it actually created a physical sensation with me and I wrote I I don't actually remember this my mum's reminded me since but I then my mum came around and she said she was saying how are you doing and I told her about this book and I said you know what mum this has inspired me one day I'm gonna write a book and it's gonna be about what it's really like when you have depression like I'm talking about the real stuff like Mm. Matt Haig did from a female corporate perspective what it's like and I don't remember ever saying that because I was in such a, a blur. And my mum reminded me years later. And that was the book that changed it for me because anytime I felt like no one got it, I knew someone got it. Yeah, Even yeah, I never yeah. spoke to him, his story was very similar to mine. And just some of the feedback that I saw on his book, I thought, well, then there's more people out there. And that then got, sort of started me on my journey to wanting to inspire uh, other people. I love that. I love that. Yeah, that is a very powerful book reasons so uh, it is it's really good and what i'll do is i'll put a link to that in the show notes because i think it's something that i've tried to get matt Haig on the show actually i don't think he does many podcasts maybe you can get him onto yours we'll see. Um, you, should, you should tell him your story <laughs> <laughs> um who else has inspired you besides matt Haig? who else has inspired you to begin to think about you know yourself and life differently and be- to begin mm-hmm. to look inwards to discover who you are yeah 
Oh gosh, so many people, so mm. many people. Um, my mum actually inspired me a lot. I'll be honest, nice. not for the right reasons, and she gets this, and so if she <laughs> listens, right. she won't be offended. Um, but she was very didn't know what to do. Like a lot of family members, they're like, oh, you know, what do I say? And do mm. I give you a hug? Do I not? And she openly admits now that she was doing what was not going to support me at the time. Like, mind ever matter, you got this. You don't need a hug. You got this, you know, sort of stuff. Because she that's what she knew. And that's yeah. it was hurting her. I think me having depression was hurting her. So since then, she's inspired me because she's opened up about how I reacted and how she realized she needs to change how she has supported people. So now she's a lot more understanding if her friends or loved ones suffer. She's like, I think mm. I know now how to do it. And her oh. ability to change has really helped me. And oh, yeah. she's so much more open to it. So she's massively inspired me. Um, what people have inspired me, as you'll probably notice, people I suggest are people that have maybe gone against what they thought they needed, what they thought was right. So she did that. Uh, Brene Brown with yeah, yeah. her story. I mean, yes, yeah, she's very successful now, but the reason mm. she started researching it was to prove her theory right and she that she didn't need to be vulnerable to be successful. And actually, yeah. she found that she was wrong and she needed to be vulnerable. So again, same sort of thing. I thought I had to be successful to feel good. And I fought and fought and fought. And even with my business, I was like, I will do this. I will. And I mm. found myself going to the same pattern. So I found that very similar to her, I had to prove my understanding to be not true to find the right path so yeah i've been so lucky to be inspired by so many people people i know yeah. and also people like her do you think i mean i i i watched one of your videos the other day and i did comment I and mean, i know that we had a little sort of like comment thing going on but there is a there is a difference isn't there in the level of success that seems to be available for women as a, as a, as a, you know, compared to guys, is that something that's also you, you found as you were trying to, I mean, obviously you were very successful straight away with, um, your, your financial career, but as you were trying to discover yourself and you're working for yourself, did that become a, an, an issue at all? Did you find that becoming a problem in regards to just because you are female and opportunities and the way that people were treating you in regards to, Oh, you know, you know, you often hear it. Oh, she's just being emotional. You know, those yeah. those sorts of comments that, you know, is is very derogatory. Um yeah. where what's what's because I, you know, open up about the that video, I think, a little bit and mm. explain your your point of view next. I think a lot of listeners will be able to relate. Yeah. So it's interesting because I speak about this a lot on my podcast mm. and also on stages, and my opinions changed over the time. So I'll share it might okay. be a little bit controversial, and I apologize Ooh. if I offend anyone, but this is just my view. I think every person on the planet will have a way of being discriminated. Mm. It can be through their gender. It can be through their age. It can be through their sexuality. It can be through where they're from, their religion. Like there are so many different things that any one of us, even if, and I, I hate to bring it up, but people always say, you know, like straight white men, right? Oh, they're always on the boards. But what if they're too young? What mm. if they're too old? You know, no matter what, and I, okay, you could say, yes, there are obviously going to be bigger pools, less minority. I get that. But the reason I share that is because for me, a hundred percent being a woman was harder starting out mm. because I was the youngest on the board. I was the only female on the board. I was the youngest by 20 years. Easy. There were times where I would say something in the board meeting and be like, shushed. There were times right. where I would go into a meeting and they would be like, Oh, Chloe, we grab the tea. And I'm like, I, yeah, sure. I will, because I don't feel like I'm above it but I'm not 
I'm not here for that. I'm here in the same seat that you're in, you know, the same place on the board. So yes, a hundred percent, there were differences I had to find. Do, would I say I had less of an opportunity? I think it's all about the way you look at it. I think if we, if we mm. focus on the gap and you and I both, you know, resonate with a lot of the theories within the gap and the gain, but if we yeah. focus on the gap and we focus on, I'm being discriminated because of this. Yes, that could actually be completely accurate. But if we keep looking at that, we're only going to see that. Whereas what I did, which I decided to do about seven or eight years ago, was look at the gain of it. So, for example, as a speaker, people still come to me and say, you know, does it not frustrate you that you're only booked as a speaker because they need to have a woman on the stage? You know, they only have one female speaker and you're you're that, you know. And by the way, I've been at events. I've been in the green room. I've organized events. And I've heard people say, we need a woman on stage. We need someone of this color on the stage. I've seen it. like So I know it happens. You think because I've seen it, that would mean I'm even more averse to it, but I'm actually not. Because for me, I think if my gender got me the opportunity, then that's that can be seen as a strength. It helped mm. me. If I go back and go, no, I'm not going to be on your stage because you only want me because I'm a female, then that's not going to help anyone. Mm. For me, I see it as there are always opportunities through anything but if we're only if we see them as opportunities. So for me now, yes, I still get speaking opportunities because I'm female and they need a female speaker. But my view is I don't mind what got me there. What I want to do is show them why they should keep me there. So if there are other women, then we're more than one woman on that stage. And that's been helped me because that I'm not saying I'm ignorant. There are definitely times where I notice that they've booked me for certain things. Yeah. But I also get opportunities for other reasons. But if I only saw oh, I'm not getting that because of my age, or I'm not getting that because of my gender, then I'm not going to see the good stuff. Yeah, you know, I think there's a victim mindset that can begin to creep in and you've got to be very yeah. careful about it, but be but be realistic at the same time. Mm-hmm. Do you think then going back to, you're talking about being in the boardroom when you were shushed, do you think that led to you overperforming, overcompensating and that Definitely. led to the depression and burning out maybe? Yeah, definitely. I still, the thing is, I don't remember a lot of the depression, but I can mm. remember the times where I was on the board and I was shushed and it wasn't just once, you know? And I think there are times where people, and I'm not saying that they put me on the board as a token. I don't think that's true. But I think there are opportunities where maybe people who are older have thought, you know, my granddad used to always say, you know, children should be seen and not heard. Now I wasn't a child, but I was the youngest by quite far. Some of the board members could genuinely have been my grandparents. So I can imagine there was cultural things that happened in there that they didn't maybe didn't mean to, but they shushed me. But mm. I would 100% say that gave me fuel. Definitely yeah. gave me fuel. Yeah. And, and so with everything going on, how did you, I mean, like you literally have a little empire going on there, right? <laughs> so this drive for success has still been there. Mm. Um, and so what challenges did you face to create you know, you've got a publishing house, mm-hmm. uh, you've got a publishing house, um, you're an author, um, you wrote this incredible book, by the way, I'm going to show it on camera. It's called, <laughs> I mean, just get to the point, won't you? <laughs> <laughs> just write the damn book. All right, I said. <laughs> um, so, I mean, and then you're a successful podcaster too. So what challenges have you faced to get you from, you know, how did you discover that you were you were going to have this publishing empire and mm. a successful career speaker? How did you get there, and what and what got in your way? Yeah, 
myself got in my way. My pattern got in my way. Oh my gosh. I mean, I've literally just talked about how I was addicted to success and how, <laughs> you know, I didn't want to fall into the trap. And now I've done arguably what's even bigger and more stressful, you know, and, and I look back to what caused my depression, by the way, which is hilarious because I craved stability in my life, which was why I was constantly fighting for the next success. Cause that was what created stability for me. It was like, Oh, ah. I'm safe if I'm doing that. And I know this because of years of therapy, by the way, but the ironic thing is I look back and I think, right, I craved stability. So what did I do? Do the one thing in life, which is the most unstable career you could possibly do as being an entrepreneur and a business <laughs> owner. And then yeah. let's stretch it even more by employing other people and having other people's payroll on, on my shoulder. You know, like you just, I have to laugh at it, but what I, the reason that these are challenges and it kind of ties into your question about how I got there was the difference this time was I never set a stretch goal. I didn't go, I want to be a director. I want to be a seven figure business owner. I've still mm. to this day completely like anytime someone, a mentor says, Chloe, I reckon you can hit this milestone. I'm like, oh, cool. We'll see. Like, I don't, mm. I don't put that pressure on myself because I know my old pattern may sneak in and I spot it straight away because of years of unraveling that. And so the reason why I've got to the place now is to be honest with you, I realized that when I went through the depression, I wanted my own freedom. So I started my own coaching business. And that was my plan originally. When I started speaking about it, people were like, your story is so inspiring. And it's really changed my life. And all this sort of stuff just came about. And I was like, maybe that could, maybe I went through all of this, whether you believe in, you know, fate or whatever, but maybe I can mm. use that as part yeah. of how I can help people. Yeah. And then I said to my mum, because she's still, she's basically like an honorary non-executive director on my board. Like she's probably the, the hardest person to get to agree to things in the business. Um, and I said to her, I said, Do you know what, Mama? I'm thinking of writing a book. This is like four years after the depression, by the way. And I'm going to write a book about my business and a how-to book to help people. And she said, oh, is this the book you told me about years ago with your depression? I went, what book? And that's how I found out that I'd wanted to write this uh, book years ago. She said, yeah, wow. you've got journals. You wrote them all out when you were depressed. So I dug out all these journals and long story short, wrote my first book, which was called Determined and Dangerous. And the whole idea of it was how I went as a corporate woman, collapsed mentally, physically, and started a business and grew my business. And that was when the publishing house kind of came about. It wasn't like I woke up and I was like, I'm going to publish books for a living. Like, I'm not even a really good writer. I love writing and I think I'm good at it, but it's yeah. not like I dreamt of being a writer. What yeah, my yeah. expertise is, is more like marketing and speaking and inspiring people to take action so yeah. that's where the whole ideas come from and then to be real honest with you it's just kind of been like one step at a time saying yes to opportunities that feel right but the biggest challenge is ignoring opportunities that don't feel right because my old pattern is yeah, yeah. oh my god Paul thinks we can do this amazing thing oh my god let's start a business together this person thinks we should do this let's do that and just saying yes and with the fix of the success yeah, yeah, yeah. now I don't make any decisions too quickly. It's like, I'll always ask at least one question before I make a decision, give myself time if I need it. And it's, and now thankfully I've got a team that that's my excuse. I'm really sorry. I can't make a decision right now. I need to pose it to the team and we'll make yeah, a yeah, group yeah. decision. Even if that helps me because then my team know my pattern as well. We're a very transparent organization. They know if we're ha if I'm having a wobble or if I'm going off on one and I've got those people to kind of hold me to account now as well. I think as entrepreneurs, to remind you that I'm just the same. It's like we're, it's, it's in there's a Colby personality test, and it's called Quick Start. And it's as entrepreneurs, we literally love a brand new idea. It's that big shiny thing. Um, and I can I've been very impulsive with that, like you in the past. And and now I've got a team like a team behind me, and they're like, no, 
we'll, we'll, we'll think about that. That's lovely, but we'll put that to one side for now. You've got these other things to still focus on. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So I know that I know what that's like. Did you, I mean, you, you, you talked about you getting in, in sort of in your own way. Does that come to like self, you know, you know, imposter syndrome? Did you self-sabotage anything? Was there, what was going on with, you know, like a mindset that was trying to, you know, hold you back in any way? Yeah, definitely. I never thought I had. So there's two things I never thought I had that a lot of business owners I've seen have is imposter syndrome and procrastination. And I used to always say to people, I've never felt that. I've never felt procrastination. I'm quite a driven, like, the minute I get the idea, like, there's nothing that's going to make me procrastinate. And I hadn't even understood it, really. Mm. So a majority of people get it. So I thought, oh, it's a bit weird. And same with imposter syndrome. But what I didn't realize is I was getting it in ways that aren't the sort of normal, stereotypical way. So I wasn't, Ooh. like, doubting myself and going, oh, you know, who, are, who am I to do this? Or, you know, what are people going to think of me? Mm. I was doubting myself after the fact. So instead of stopping me, I was doing it and then thinking I'm an imposter afterwards. Wow. And it, do you know what? That's even worse because you can't take it back. You know, no, and, I, no. and the amount of times that, I mean, even now, this is an interesting reflection to share so publicly, but even now when I speak at an event, I yeah. cannot watch it back. I cannot. And as a speaker, that is the one thing mentors tell you. You must watch it back. You must yeah, critique. Yeah. Even podcasts I record. What does your mind say to you then? Yeah. What did your mind, what's your mind doing? What's it saying? It's like, why did you say that? Why, you know, um, what, why did you say that? Or um, who do you think you are saying that? Like, like, look how confident you are on there. You know, is that wow. really you? Weird. And and the thing is, I'll come off the stage and my team are there, my partner's there, and he's like my biggest chili. It's amazing. And he'll say to me, oh my God, you did so good. Yeah. And I'll go, oh, did I? And I have to then let a few days go by and then, then receive the feedback. Because otherwise I just ignore it. I'm like, no, you're just saying that. People can come up to me at an event and be like, you're so okay. inspiring. And I feel nothing because so the imposter syndrome is so loud so what do you think you're protecting yourself from there then what is it that you don't want in mm. that moment when you know you've got to wait a few days so there's something you're protecting yourself from what do you think it is i think it's probably because when i look back at what i used to crave as the immediate extrinsic proof i used to crave the success i used to crave yeah, the yeah. i used to crave the great work great work yeah and that's got me to where it was well, it was quite dark and I genuinely think I've built up this, this barrier so that I'm not craving that fix. I don't feel anything at first. Afterwards, if someone emails me and goes, oh, you were great at that event, I feel it. I'm like, oh, thanks. But I think I put up this barrier because when you, it's not like, well, most of it is about like a podcast or launching a book, but when you're at an event, it's all like people will just come up to you. I mean, I've been mm. in the toilets and people are queuing outside the toilet to come and like say something to me, you know, like it right. can be very full on, yeah, which yeah. is fantastic. And I'm not saying to anyone who, do who does that, don't do that to the speakers because it does feel mm. great when people are ready for it, but it can be quite full on if you are not ready for it. And so mm. for me, bearing in mind that the previous time I used to get all the pats on the back and the were good, well done, it sent me to the wrong path and, you know, on a track that was that addiction. I genuinely think it's my way of protecting myself from that again ah, okay and it, and you know you, you work with a lot of authors i guess mm -hmm. yep so and, and imposter syndrome come must come up there a lot isn't it oh, i'm yeah. writing my first book at the moment and i'm doing it very well thank you because i'm just writing the damn book right <laughs> so um what you know what advice would you give to anyone who's in the creative field mm. who has got that nagging voice inside their head that's preventing them from taking that risk and getting that book just 
written? You know, what would you say? Yeah. The key thing I've seen with authors that get imposter syndrome is because you're creating something that takes time. And the longer you spend the time, the more voices that can pop up, the more beliefs you can get, the more people that will launch books, then you'll go, oh my God, I can't do it. They've just done it now. Now I'm gonna have to wait. Or I'm never going to be as good as them. You know, if you think about it, when you do a podcast recording, it's done. You do it, you move on. Mm. Whereas a book, you start and you have to take time. Even if you do it really fast, you still have, there's still a time. Yeah, yeah. And the longer you get into your head, the, the louder those voices can get. So what I always say to people is number one, when you decide to start something creative, write down why you're doing it. Because mm. the why you're calling is like an anchor to come back to. Then when yeah, you have what I that. call a wobble where you're like, oh, what am I doing? Or yeah, yeah. You know, no one will want to read it. No one wants to look at this book. It's going to be rubbish. Yeah. I'm going to get one star on Amazon. All, all of it. I love it. Yeah. You literally rattling off the imposter voice. I hear it. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. can you see what I mean? But that that comes, that anchor pulls you back. The other thing I would say is when you're writing the why, make a note of what would what will I do if I start to doubt myself? Mm. So come up with a plan. So when you're really inspired at the beginning, you go, oh, I'm going to write a book and this is what I'm going to write it about. And this is why I want to write it. What will I do if I get, if I start doubting myself and then Mm -hmm. write out what you'll do? Because then when the emotion comes up, because let's remember imposter syndrome is based on emotion. And when emotion is high, logic is low. So the the facts just do not, you can have someone going, yeah, but you're great. And you're going, yes, (laughs) logically that makes sense. But the evidence evidence right now for that? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So that's what I would say. And then when you're in amongst it, so if you're already there, because you're like, well, Mm -hmm. I can't go back and do that now is go back to your why and look for the facts. So a lot of people, when they have imposter syndrome during a book, so let's say you start writing a third of it or halfway through, usually someone has it then. I see it every time I mentor someone in the writing process. And the thing that pops up is they start to think, well, my peers are going to think this is rubbish, right? Well, actually, who's your reader? Are your peers your reader? You know? Good point, yeah. Am I going to get a one-star review? well, what if I get five-star reviews? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it, it's it like just, just challenge it and just mm. find the fact, like play with the thoughts, challenge them. If, if it's like a statement, like no one's going to like this, what's the facts? How, can I prove it is a question I ask myself a lot. And if yeah, I can't, I then, you know, and just challenge that because all you got to do is just, there's a loud voice, which is your imposter voice, but there's also another voice that's the passionate voice. It's just too quiet mm. at the time the imposter shouting. So just v- turn the volume up a little bit. Yeah, I think just to add to that, a couple of things I do because I, I, I love working with imposter syndrome. It's one of my favorite things to to dive into. Is when we take risks, especially as entrepreneurs, you know, we're we're moving down a pathless path, and we're embracing uncertainty, and it's our intolerance for uncertainty that often creates that panicky voice that tries to lead us back to safety. Don't write the book; no one's going to read it. You know, it's that, you know, so a a sign that you're moving in the right direction is imposter syndrome. And then also work out what makes the voice so believable. It's just a voice. It's going to be there. It's your ego. It's going to chat away. I mean, you ignore most of the other things it says. So why focus on this? You know, 70,000 thoughts a day. You know, we can choose more wisely which thoughts we focus on. Mm, I love that. Yeah, it's like what makes us you could turn the you know, turn the ego into Mickey Mouse. That's an old NLP trick. You know, it's that yeah. just don't take it seriously. It's gonna say what it says, and let's just focus on just writing the damn book. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
Um, thank you so much for being an incredible guest, by the way. We're coming, we're coming to the end of the actual show. And um, I just wanted to ask you for any authors out there who are thinking of, do you know, I am just going to write the damn book. Uh, and I'll put the link for your book in the in the show notes. What are three tips to finish mm. off this interview? Three tips that would help someone get that book done. Oh, love that. So three tips. The biggest one I think people often don't do, even if they come to me with a finished manuscript and we have to kind of go back and fix, is every book needs to take a reader on a journey. Mm. If your reader feels lost, they're not going to finish the book. So it, it's a bit like if you're creating a training course or you're doing a talk, there has to be a beginning, a middle and an end. And a lot of people just start writing, but I always recommend create your journey. So first tip would be, where are they before they read your book? That's like point A. Yeah. Where are they when they finish your book? That's point B. And get really clear, like what have they achieved? What's different? What doubts no longer mm. there? What do they believe? What do they think? What do they do? And then your book takes them from A to B. They want that journey. They want the journey. Okay, and then yeah. also they're not, they're more likely to actually read it. But guess what? You're more likely to finish it because you're like, I'm just going to take the next step. Yeah. I'm just yeah, yeah. Keep moving we down like the that book. Move. Yeah. We like the momentum of it, don't we? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, cool. I'm nearly at the end of the journey. Awesome. They're nearly at the end when they read it, and you're nearly at the end when you write it. So that's the first step. The first step I would say. And most people have written a book. It mm. doesn't take too long to make sure that's in place, but it can be a good checkpoint when you're writing a book. Like, am I taking them on this journey? Yep. That's definitely the first one. Um, the second one is actually think about your marketing before you finish the book. So a lot of people will write the book and go, I'll worry about publishing it later. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Okay. But the sooner you get a publisher on board, or if you do it yourself, a team on board, the better because their thoughts can actually be really impactful on the content of the book. So okay. this is a big tip from because my background with my business was marketing rather than writing. But you need to market yourself in the book very subtly. The book, a lot of the book is actually marketing. The title, the blurb, the back cover, you know, the mm. contents page is actually marketing, getting people to see, well, what am I going to find out at that? It's a, they're all hooks, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so actually, the sooner you put your marketing hat on is better. And actually, it's when people say to me, oh, God, Clover, I'm still writing. Like, I can't put marketing hat on. But just get someone on board that can help you with that, whether it's a team member or it's a publisher, the sooner you get them on board, the better. Because otherwise what happens is people go, oh, thank God, Paul, I finished the book. And they go, oh, I'm done. It's not over yet. You're not, are you? <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the final thing I would say to just get it done, and this is less about the book itself, but more the journey, is how are you keeping yourself accountable to getting it written? So for me, my mm. first book, I wrote a bit every day. And I was like, I'm going to do an hour a day. And then sometimes I got so excited. I was like, oh, I'm just going to carry on writing until I've yeah, got meetings, yeah, yeah. you know, just that people lose momentum and say they get writer's block because they're like, oh, I've just, you know, it's been a week. Oh, now I don't know what to write. Now it's been a month. Now it's been a year. Mm. They've not opened the document for like a year. And that's because it's not because they got writer's block. They just lost momentum. It's like you need to set, you need to not have to accelerate all the time and just keep the car moving. That's all it is. So oh, yeah. just be consistent a little bit every day and yeah. before like the amount of times I work with authors and they're like oh my gosh we're nearly finished just we've done it so quickly because yeah, yeah. we've had that consistency and accountability on the way I love that I love that and one more tip from you one more tip because I'm being so greedy uh oh, one more yeah. tip on anyone who is struggling with their mental health right now and mm. they've been listening to this episode what would you advise they do if they are maybe heading towards a bit of burnout struggling mm. 
recognize maybe some symptoms of depression what would you advise yeah so one tip is tough but i would say the first thing is you've got to create space for you to feel something mm. i didn't feel anything and i didn't even give myself a chance to feel anything so if anyone's listening to this or watching this and you're like i feel like i might have some of those symptoms or i've been struggling give yourself space and just tune into it you know let yourself feel something ask yourself how am i feeling today like that's my first journaling question every single morning how do i feel today because it's just about creating that space and then i would say if i can squeeze in another one is speak to someone because the worst thing you can do is stay in silent and a lot of people think they have to because no one will get it or whatever even if you buy a book they don't need to hear you back but just speak it out loud you know speak to someone and connect with someone that's been there it can be a professional it can be someone that's been there as well it can be an author that's written about it but just let it let let that process simmer because it, you do just need to sometimes to start to see that there is a way out and that the first step is speaking to someone, even if you think that people are going to judge you or, you know, they're not going to love you for it. Just find someone that you think will get it, that, but protect yourself when you do that. You know, Lovely. you're not, you're not speaking to them for validation of your feelings. You're speaking to them so you can say it out loud. It doesn't really matter what they say back. I love that. I love that. And if people want to find out more about you or, and listen to your podcast, where can they find you? Yeah. So the podcast is called the Inspired by Show. Paul will be on it soon. No yeah, doubt. So that, yeah. you can have it. Have a listen to where the roles are reversed. Uh-oh. It's <laughs> uh oh, indeed. It's on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, all the usual places. And if you want to connect with me, it's Chloe Beeson official over every social media channel. Yeah, I will put all those links in the show notes. This has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for coming. It's been great. A lot of gold here for people listening. Oh, thank you, Paul. It's been so much fun. I feel like we could talk for ages. <laughs> I know we could have gone, we could have done a two hour special, uh, but we won't <laughs> do that. We won't be that indulgent. But uh, thank you so much. I look forward to coming on to your show. And to anyone listening to the show, thank you so much for joining me on the Mindset Change podcast. And I look forward to connecting with you on the very next episode. Mm-hmm.